Welcome to Thoughtlines, a podcast exploring the freshest and most unconventional thinking at CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. I'm Catherine Galloway, and this minutely measured episode is all about time. talking to Professor Simon Goldhill, Professor of Greek Literature and Culture at the Faculty of Classics and a former director of CRASH. In over four decades at Cambridge, he's written on Greek tragedy, prose, poetry and philosophy, on the importance of place and, most recently, of time. He also finds time to chair the global essay writing competition, the Nine Dots Prize, the latest winner of which was announced by Professor Goldhill this month. So we also squeeze in that particular $100,000 question too. What does it mean to be young in an ageing world? Professor Goldhill, thanks so much for agreeing to meet me on this uh, quite chilly spring day. Um, it's lovely to be here. Now, you're standing in front of an amazing, well, a sort of floor cavity filled with pottery outside the Alison Richard building. What's going on here? These are the wonderful works. There's three of them designed by Edmund de Waal and built by him when, when the building was set up. And we commissioned these works as a piece of public art. And what it shows us is pottery, of course, porcelain that he works in. Yes. And it's the idea of these pots are going through the fragments, and you'll see they're, they're little boxes of broken pots as well yes. as these beautiful whole ones. And it's the idea that we're going back down into the earth. Oh, wow. So this is, as it were, the reverse of archaeology. Oh, so we're goodness. starting with the finished object, and then it's going back down into where it's come from. And there are three of these, and they change every day. When you can see a few leaves lying across the grass, yes. we've had snow, you have water, you have all things. And every day it's a slightly different change, and it's been beautiful. When I worked here, every day I would look at them as I walked in. <laughs> and there are little pots of his inside the building on various walls that people don't usually look at. They're on little ledges, but when you see them, there's little pops of beauty that you get as you go in. So this is art, humanities, social sciences, sciences. Mm -hmm. amazing amounts of things going on in this building, both fragments and holes, things being put together that wouldn't normally be put together. That's the whole ethos of Crash, isn't it? New questions and new ways of dealing with them, or central questions that really need multidisciplinary approaches. That was the essence of Crash, yes. Could you show me around inside? I'd love to. Now, the first thing you see, of course, is this amazing, huge atrium building that goes up, what, four floors? Four floors. It's uh, the, central, the central heart of Crash. Uh, we usually have artistic uh, exhibitions here, and it's one of the most bustling places in Cambridge. It's rather melancholic being here under lockdown. Because normally, you're right, when you walk in here, it's like a hive, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you like a high-energy life, Crash was the place to be. It was uh, a great place to do research, but it was the exact opposite of that image of the quiet library and individuals. Yes. It was all about contact and people together and people yelling and shouting and moving, saying, can we do this, can we do this? It was very, very exciting. And the answer was often, yes, we can. It was, surprisingly, yes, and surprisingly successful at doing it too. 
And you were the director of Crash uh, for seven years between 2011 and 2018, and you oversaw the move yeah. of the centre from a smaller, um, rather informal start to this amazing bespoke building. Tell me what you wanted it to be like and whether right. that's been achieved. Absolutely. We started off in a rather shabby, genteel way in an old building uh, on Mill Lane. And people loved it who worked there because people like the space they work in. But moving here to chrome and steel and space and light right in the center of the university was absolutely crucial. My aim was always to build up the actual research potential, not just to do seminars or conferences that were taking place, but to put together teams of people who would actually do long-term research. When I took over at Crash, we had one postdoc who was on a two-year contract okay. with us. When I left, we had over 40 on four-year contracts. So it was a multi-million pound business. We had 11 professors on secondment to us who were PIs running projects, and we were running 300 research events a year, if you can imagine Amazing. that. Yeah. And so we had a big team, 11 staff and you know 300 events most research centers were lucky if they do 50 yes yeah we, we were doing 300 and we were lucky that we were hit the right moment i mean cambridge of course is a fantastic place to convene academic work because so many people come through and it has great pulling power yes. and we managed to take the brilliance of young academics and turn that into grant-winning potential to make projects. Which is all the more impressive given that, you know, Cambridge tends to have big, flashy, shiny centres for science and everybody's chucking money there. But here we are doing this in the humanities. And actually, the, this building proves that not only you can do it, but you can do it in a way that changes society. That's absolutely right. And not only, I mean, we, we had a mixture. We were very happy to do instrumental work. So the Centre for the Future of uh, Artificial Intelligence started here before it got a big Levy Hume grant with us and then moved off to be itself. We've done projects on areas such as maternal mortality in Africa. We've done a great deal of work on, for example, conspiracy theory involving a lot of computer work and that sort of area, mixing with science. But we were also very, very happy to do real hard-nosed, serious as it were, intellectual work with no evident social impact as well. I mean, at one point, I think we had 15 academics, early career scholars, working on the early modern period. Yeah. I mean, they were, the, we were one of the biggest early modern centres in the world in that sense. Yes. It was very strange. It just happened to be we followed the smarts. So when you were guiding this building to completion, what were you asking the architects for? What were you asking them to, to deliver in terms of a feeling? Um, well, I think it was about having collective space on the one hand. So this atrium is absolutely central where people can meet. This was not going to be a rabbit warren of offices. Okay. And the building has flow so that you can move through and meet people serendipitously and by design. And when we go into Crash, you'll see we have an open plan space where people could both work headphones if necessary, and at the same time meet and speak to each other every day. So it was all about trying to embody in physical space a sense of what collaboration could mean. Thank you very much. Well, could you show me your crash episode? Yes, Thank of course. you. Let's go there. So, Professor Goldhill, we're here in one of these um, 
office spaces of crash now, which is where all the sort of hive organization goes on of this amazing building. Um, one of the reasons we're talking to you this month, though, is not so much your role in delivering crash to this building, but a continuing role you have, which is the chair of the board for the Nine Dots Prize. Mm. Let's just recap for a minute. The Nine Dots Prize, administered at Crash, mm. hosted by Crash, it's a 3,000 word anonymous international mm. essay competition, open to everyone worldwide. And the prize is a pretty astonishing $100,000, which mm. is about 70,700 pounds. <laughs> that buys mm. you a year of thinking time because the idea is that it's a twofold prize. It's not just the cash if you win it, it's also a publishing contract with Cambridge University Press. And you get that year of time to turn your 3,000 words into a book-length answer to the nine dots question. Yes. Now, I know that yesterday you and your fellow members of the prize jury mm. decided on the winner of this year's nine dots prize. The question that person had to answer was, what does it mean to be young in an aging world. Mm. So the first thing I have to ask you is, is your winner old or young or somewhere in between? Um, well, everybody's young to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, I would say that she is towards the younger end of in between. Okay. If that's all right, I won't. Uh, I won't. I won't say her age because I don't know it. Okay, because but... you've got to remember these are anonymous entries. Yes, which is a very frightening thing for academics to have to do. That's to say, you have to judge purely on quality, but you're also judging: can this person turn a three thousand word essay into a book? when you have no evidence at all about their track record or yes. experience, or you could end up appointing a fifteen year old boy who would know nothing about publishing if they'd written a brilliant essay. Yes. Or a 75-year-old ex-vice-chancellor of a university who would not come under our search for new voices, which is what the book is aiming to do. Yes. So we're very lucky that each time we've managed to come up with a really, really good winner. Can you tell me a little bit more about this year's winner? I can tell you a little about this year's winner. Um, the project is absolutely fascinating um, and it's on Africa okay and it is about the fact that the current population of Africa 73% are under 18 wow which is the complete reverse of what we usually say in the West, where we say, gosh, we've got this aging world, the population of old people is growing, Japan is now 60% over 70, or yes. et cetera, et cetera. So instead of seeing the old people as the problem, yes. it's seeing what is the potential of this youth? How is it going to change the world when you suddenly have this enormous resource of young people bursting with energy and the opportunities that the new digital world will give through networking and new sorts of training to make Africa the really buzzing place it's going to be in the next 30 years? And lots of people have talked about Africa in terms of you know, new markets and new power. But this was a really insightful, brilliant essay on what did it mean for these young people to be able to now think about changing the world. Oh, my goodness. And it's extremely exciting. So that was the project that won. It's uh, a project that was proposed by 
a young female journalist, freelance writer, no permanent job. And I have to say that when I phoned her last night in Berlin where she's working, she was, I think, overwhelmed. But the loveliest thing was she said after going, well, 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 I'm so excited, (laughs) ah, as one does. She said, I'm so thrilled by the opportunity to complete this project. It means so much to me. So you that's saw the that's one heart. of the way we saw that. That's the heart of her, that when she, you know, that's why we know she's going to get it done. Not only that she has some journalistic experience, but also the passion to get it done. And that commitment came through and that joy. Let's go back to that call <laughs> for a minute, because yeah. you, as the uh, chair of the board of the prize, mm-hmm. gets to make the call, which must be one of the loveliest jobs ever to phone somebody and say, yes. because, of course, there's no shortlist for the Nine Dots Prize. Mm. It's submissions, which in this case mm. closed on the 18th of January 2021, Mm. the next thing you know, you're phoned by you. So what do you say? You say, hello, I'm Professor Simon Goldhill of... Chairman of the Nine Dots Prize, at which point you hear silence on the other end. And um, (laughs) I have to say, the first time when I I phoned young Williams, who won the first prize... um, he was a graduate student at that point in Oxford. Yes, in Oxford. I mean, he'd worked already at Google, so he wasn't as young as some graduate students, but a graduate student, married, about to have a baby. Yes. Really you know, somewhat precarious existence. And it's the first time on on the phone I've heard the sound of a jaw hitting the floor. Oh. <laughs> he was genuinely, completely stunned, stunned and silenced by that. By the, whereas uh, Annie in, in India was absolutely thrilled. As a, it was the second uh, winner. It was the second winner. And uh, yes, yesterday with Trish was particularly nice. How many entries did you have this year? We, we had around 700. So 700. just under 700. So it's a lot of lot of entries to get through. Yes, 3,000 words each. Yes. So that's a fair bit of reading. Well, not everybody reads everything because we break down the committee into smaller groups to read okay. and we come up with, you know, because you've only got to get one. Yes. So it's a very, very strange thing to get from 700 to one. You have to take some shortcuts. But the discussion is always on the committee very intense very focused and very based on the material because it's 3000 words you can read it with great care and once you get down the short the final shortlist was a dozen and so we only discussed a dozen yesterday so the um, dozen is it a bit like a, a booker prize for example jury mm-hmm. where there's people really pushing for favourites or is there a clear consensus early on you know what this is the most exciting no uh in each case there's because it's only a three thousand word essay and many of us on the committee are academics they're also other people of course but uh as academics our job is to pick holes in arguments and see flaws and it's jolly hard to write a three thousand word essay without the occasional error or at least gap because of course it's very short so we have we always have our very which gaps matter to us most and it's uh, a fascinating procedure and there's a, a genuine excitement when we unveil who it is to ourselves because the anonymity is absolutely solid we have no idea who anybody is so you decide the winner and then there's the big reveal of opening an envelope or whatever and said now who, who actually is, wrote who, this who have we got yes So the Nine Dots Prize is named after the famous logic puzzle, the Nine Mm. Dots, where how do you link up Nine Dots? The only way you can do that is by thinking outside the box. That's exactly right. And it's all the questions you set are on contemporary issues that Mm. matter, things that really concern all of us. So, of course, what does it mean to be young in an ageing world is so completely relevant. But I have to tell you that 
as a journalist, as somebody who mm. asks questions for a living, as I know that yeah. you do as, as an academic as well, your questions are terrific. Mm. Uh, your first one was, are digital technologies making politics impossible? And the result, mm. the winner of that, the mm. inaugural Nine Dots Prize in 2017, was James Williams, mm. who, as you say, was a strategist at Google and then became an Oxford philosophy uh, student. His book's called Stand Out of Our Light, Freedom and Resistance in the Attention Economy. And that reads very much like a manifesto and mm. a, some serious suggestions about what we can do about this creep of mm. technology onto our daily um, mm. attention spans. And it really made me stop and think, which I know mm. is the the purpose of it. But then we go to winner number two, of course, 2019, Annie Zaidi, who's, as you say, mm. based in India, a journalist, a script writer, mm. freelance writer. So there's good writing coming in. Mm. And her book is much more of a memoir because her mm. question was, is there still no place like home? Mm. And what she's produced is called Bread, Cement, Cactus, a memoir of belonging and dislocation mm. and again also made me stop and think because mm. she talks about being at home in your language being at home in your body what mm. does it mean if your language your mother tongue is not recognized officially in the country of your birth mm. um what does it mean to keep transferring to different places what does it mean not to have a mm. nuclear family i mean fascinating subjects mm. so now you're telling me that Youth and ageing is going to be focusing on Africa. I mm. mean, this is so global, isn't it? Well, the idea was, one, we wanted new voices. So people, not the usual suspects, writing the usual sorts of things. We wanted also to ask questions in a way that were genuinely stimulating and would open up a whole range of possibilities. There are obvious answers to any question. So we had quite a lot of rather obvious answers about climate change, some good, some bad. For the youth and ageing world. For the youth and the ageing world. But this question seemed to us to all of us on the committee just to go, wow, I hadn't thought of that. That's really interesting. Yeah. And so it became like, a, a, as we hope it will stop readers in their tracks. And the opportunity to see, as it were, youth not as a problem, but as a resource and a potential and an excitement Yes. Well, that's a very interesting thought too. So how mm. do you come up with the questions? Uh, we sit around the table and we brainstorm good old-fashioned you know, <laughs> backroom stuff. And it's rather fun. It's a bit like you imagine those old comedy teams sitting around in, in LA, sitting around, people throw out ideas, and everyone goes, nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, it, it's a moment just happens. It really is an epiphanic moment when somebody goes, what about? And everyone, everyone goes, says, yes. wow, yes. And so we know the sort of some of the general areas of great concern, but it's about finding the right wording, the right concern, and something that will really open up people's imaginations. That's what. How long does for. it take? Do you oh, it can take hours, or it can take minutes. Oh. It's far from good. It's like anything else. It's that you sometimes you spend a lot of time going down blind alleys. Are you proud but, of all your questions? Yes, I am actually. I think they've all been rather, rather clever. <laughs> Sounds a bit <laughs> smug, doesn't it? But it's not, I mean, that's to say they've done the job we wanted them to do, yes. which was to be arresting, to open the possibility and to attract uh, the right sorts of uh, applications. The writer who wins also gets to come to Crash for a, for a term. 
and they to can work live in Cambridge on this book. to work on the book. And of course, Cambridge, what a place to think about such issues. You've got here in this building, we've got African studies, we've got uh, development studies, we've got all sorts of people who are just walking the corridors. You're going to bump into the intellectuals you need to get the evidence you 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 want for your, your project. So, you know, again, that, that works perfectly for us. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity for which writers rarely have to test their ideas as they're developing with some of the smartest minds in the country. In real time. And real time. And it's you know, it's a bit frightening for some people because the people who win this prize are not academics and so forth. Yes. I mean, you know, philosophy graduate, but yes. as it were, not a, a, career, a, a academic. career academic as such. And I think it can be quite terrifying to sit in a room like this with 20 academics who go, well, I didn't like page three, you know. <laughs> Let me explain why. Yes. Yeah. But um, I think it's also, as long as you have the strength of will to remember that you're the writer, and you're there because you're a good writer, then there's no problem because it's just information, it's evidence, it's stuff you can deal with. And I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Um, and so it's a well-designed prize. I'd like to talk about your own thinking time because, you know, mm. Crash is a big job and you were director here for seven years. You're still on the prize committee. Mm. You're publishing an enormous amount in your own area, mm. which is Greek literature and culture mm. and the Faculty of Classics. How do you find the clear thinking time when you've mm. got all these balls in the air? How do you mm. find the time that you're giving the winner of the Nine Dots Prize, the thinking and talking and reflecting time? Where do you get mm. that in your own life? Um, well, I'm very lucky at the moment that I'm in the middle of a four-year leave, ah. so I can't I can't complain in the slightest about that, which is both the leave that I accrued while working at Crash plus a leave you fellowship, senior fellowship. And so I've had, I'm in year three at the moment, so I've had three years of solid reading and writing. And because of lockdown, as opposed to travelling abroad 26 times a year or whatever, um, you're here. Here, and so I've been sitting at home. I've had access to libraries almost throughout, thank God. And I've been able to sit and read and write, which has been absolutely fantastic for my work. But even when I was at Crash, I think I must say, I think, you know, they would say, give a busy man a task to do. Yes. Get it done. Yes. What I loved about it was the constant intellectual, intellectual stimulation. So my brain was firing at a million miles an hour all the time. You know, I had five seminars with some of the brightest young people uh, in Cambridge every week. And that was incredibly stimulating. And I'm very, very rigorous about making some time for myself. I don't sit and stare out of the window. I try and read a book every day. and A book every day? If one can. And, you know, and, and what to, time uh, of the day do you do that? Well, doing all right so far. It's, you know, it's 11 o'clock, got through, got 100 pages already, and I've been up. Wow. <laughs> and so, you know, um, and so I do, try, I, I do try and keep reading all the time. Otherwise, you lose track of what's going on. But one of the things that was most exciting about being at Crash was the fact that the most cutting-edge research in different fields was being plonked on my table all the time. Yes, it was coming um, to you. It was coming to me. And then my question was, well, what did I absorb from it? Right. And I would like to think that my work has re reflected that. <laughs> well, let's talk about that because your <laughs> latest book um, is called The Christian Invention of Time, Temporality and the Literature of Late Antiquity. So we're talking about mm. youth and ageing. With yeah. the Nine Dots Prize, we're talking about yeah. time in terms of your own research. Yeah. We're talking about thinking time yeah. as an academic. Um, sure. But you've also written on 
many aspects of literature, from mm. Greek tragedy, prose, poetry, theatre, philosophy. Mm. You've also written about place. So mm -hmm. you've written an enormous book on Jerusalem called Jerusalem City of Longing, mm. and that won the Independent Publishers Gold Medal for History mm. in 2010. Mm. Now you're tackling time. So how does that all happen? <laughs> what links it all together? I think my real love has always been language, bizarrely. And so, not bizarrely, not to me, but it may not look like the obvious connection. And when I say language, I think I would describe myself primarily as a philologist in the old style. And so my earliest work was on language of Greek tragedy in the sense of how does a public language work? I mean, this was a theatrical language which was displaying political discourse to the, the city. And so it was a way in which how did you explore your own cultural ideology in front of your own culture? And that idea that language is a route into the stories we tell about ourselves and the stories that other people tell about us has maintained, been maintained all the way through the sorts of work I've been doing, which is why, as it were, it's Greek literature and culture. I'm not just interested in telling the story of what the books do, but I'm interested in how the literature relates to how we live our lives and how we tell the stories by which we live. And in um, this most recent book, The Christian Invention of Time, um, mm. you're talking about how mm. a concept of time, mm. a fairly modern idea of time, brought to us mm. by, as you're careful to say, Christianities at mm. that point, um, changed how we situate ourselves as humans in the world. So we haven't always had a seven-day week. We haven't always thought of punctuality as a mm. virtue. Mm. Uh, we haven't always viewed our lifetime in, and what makes a life in the mm. same way. Um, a lot of that is due to this huge transformation that you situate mm. in, in Christianity. None of those ideas really had been set out to me in that way before. <laughs> um, and I thought... My goodness, I mean, time is a vast topic. How do you mm. come to structure a project like this? Well, that was part of the project's problem. How do you talk about time? What, what struck me, first of all, is I'd read a lot of books on the modern invention of time, so-called, when the invention of clocks, I mean, more and more accurate clocks, the idea of latitude, the idea of industrialization. There are loads of books on that. And they all say, wow, isn't it amazing that we used to have this old-fashioned sort of sense of time when the way you understood time was through the tasks you had in the, in the and the seasons. And then suddenly clock time comes along and everything follows from that and we end up with Einstein. Very rough version. Right. And there are several wonderful books on that topic. They all seem to think that, as it were, medieval time was a given. But actually, Christianity completely redesigns our sense of temporality. And that, to me, was the story I wanted to tell. And it was clear why nobody wanted to tell it, because it was too huge a topic, as you said. <laughs> so the, the, the way that the book is designed is that there are 10 opening essays, and they are essays very much in nine-dot yes. style, quite short essays, on what I took to be certain key issues for understanding the change in time. And those are essays on general topics. Okay. And so there's one on waiting. There's one on timelessness. There's one on surprise, the moment, right? and these, these ideas. And then in the second half of the book, it's quite a long book, I'm afraid, the second half of the book is looking at five or six absolutely major texts, which aren't much discussed in those terms, to see how these ideas of time become expressed in language and how that language then gets taken up into social form. And you've um, done a very crash thing with the choice of text that you use, I yeah. know, because they're not your classics. They're not your canon. No. 
that you've gone, you've pushed the boundaries out and said, what would happen if we got this, this and this to talk to each other? Well, that's absolutely right. But they're texts that haven't been thought of in these ways. And it's quite extraordinary. So let me give you one very simple example, which might make it, might, might make it clear. Everybody knows the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. And an arche and logos. Now, a fifth century poet, wonderful poet from Panopolis in Egypt called Nonus, one of the major writers, most influential fifth century poet, actually. He wrote two epics, one on Dionysus, the Greek pagan god, the other is a paraphrase of the Gospel of John. So he takes the prose of John and turns it into hexameter verse. So already he's taking the so-called language of ordinary men, which is what the Gospels sell themselves as, even though John is quite philosophical, and says, no, I'm going to turn into poetry. I want an elite audience. So what's his first word? Remember, in the beginning is the first word of John. His first word is akronos, timeless. So instead of beginning with the beginning, he says, no, there is no beginning. It's timeless. We're outside time. So immediately we're locking into a whole series of Christian ideas about the endlessness, the timelessness of God. How does God sit outside time? What are the implications? How can we imagine a world without time, which is what God lives in? Can we even imagine that? But what he's done is take the Gospels and change them. He's made them, in his terms, more Christian, more theological. And you can see the upgrading of a thinking to introduce a notion of time in a different way. And that's just a very simple example, a very complicated example at one level, but yeah. one word example of how writing poetry then becomes, well, that's going to change the way you, how you are as a person, because you're going to start to come across the gospel stories through this poetry, if you read it. And if, if once you've read it and you go back to John, you're constantly playing the two off against each other in your mind. So he's really trying to change how you place yourself in the world by changing the possibilities of how you think about time. Through language. Through language. And so, again, the close reading has always been to me a, a high principle of looking at words and seeing how they work and being a good reader. That, to me, is very important. And that's one of the ways we can study these texts and see what's going on. Your book concludes with a, what you call a coda, mm. which is writing in the time of sickness. Now, that seems to be you're addressing pandemic time. Is that what you're yeah, doing? Well, I, Tell yeah, me about I was that. sitting at home and trying to say, well, what's happened to time in the last years or so? And, of course, this wasn't in any way trying to diminish people's sense of you know, loss for the people who'd lost people or lost jobs or lost money. There's a lot of despair around. But trying to think what had happened to our sense of daily life Yes. and what had happened to our sense of the future. And what a strange time it was to sit and think about temporality when the days were all the same and spreading out and our routines were being destroyed. And I thought, you know, one of the things I write about the past and I'm fascinated about the past, but for me, it's always a question of remembering that as a scholar, you're situated in the present and you have your own biases. And the two are dynamically in relation to each other. And if you can't relate to what, what you're doing now, to what was going on then and vice versa, there is no point in the same way. So I'm, you know, I wanted to remind ourselves that thinking about temporality is not an academic issue. It's how we live our lives. Did yeah. you find it difficult to write this book because you had so much time? Because we're talking about when you no. were director of Crash, you were immensely busy. No, this was a book I really, really needed time to write. Um, because it was so complicated to structure and there was so much reading to do. I mean, really, really a lot of reading. 
um, in terms of surprising texts, new texts, texts without commentaries, texts that you took a while to get into, and, you know, going to places that I hadn't worked on before. So it was actually, I think I was probably using my business to put off writing a book for a while. Can we talk about your own lifetime in Cambridge? Because I know you came up to King's College, where you still yes. are, yeah, as yeah. an undergraduate mm. in, what, 1975? Yes, yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. Then you stayed for your PhD and then yeah. continued in the Faculty of Classics. How does that anchoring sense, if we talk about there's no place like mm. home, which of course was your second sure. nine dots question, King's and Cambridge is very much your home. Mm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I can in a way. I mean, I grew up in North London and I, you know, that's still the place where I, the only place I can drive without a map. (laughs) (laughs) um, But I came here at 18 and never left. And I I never left because it provided me with something absolutely crucial, which was that intellectual world in which I wished to live, which was linked in those days and still is to a genuinely liberal, curious open-hearted and open-minded space that King's College is. It was immediately obvious that there were certain things that I loved about it, not just the intellectual life, which has been the centre of it, of course, but also socially, the sense that you can sit and talk to somebody and they won't think it's surprising that you're interested in temporality in the late antique. They'll be, they'll be fascinated by that. But perhaps I could put it like this. I and mean, one of the things I noticed most, my brother and my sister stayed in North London and still live around the corner from where we grew up, and that's absolutely fine. And indeed, my son now lives around the corner from where we grew up, which is even more frightening. <laughs> but uh, what I noticed from my brother and my sister is that they don't spend their lives not only doing intellectual things in quite the same way as I do, but with people of all ages. I mean, when I was uh, you know, not doing crash, I did crash and I was teaching full time at King's, you know, I was spending a lot of time with 18 to 23 year olds, then at crash it's 23 to 30 year olds, you know, or whatever. And it's, it keeps you not just on your toes, but constantly stimulated with these new ideas pouring in. And it becomes very, very hard to get fixed in your ways if you're open to that. And that's one of the reasons why I've had such a varied intellectual life in what I've written is because of the constant, wow, that's interesting. Let me follow that. And you know, I get, and the humility, right, yeah. perhaps yeah. the openness of learning from somebody younger than yourself. Absolutely right. You learn all the time in that way. But and that's that, something that's... people don't expect from Cambridge, particularly no, Cambridge, no. a world-leading university that mm. is also a space to be able to say, "I don't know." If you can't say "I don't know," you never learn anything. You know, you know, there are lots of arrogant people who know lots of things. And it's good that people know things and they should know what they know. And when they know what they know, they should say what they know. That's absolutely fine. But if you genuinely want to move things forward and get different answers, you have to say, look, we don't know the answer to this. How are we going to go about finding an answer? What do we need to know together? How do we share what we have? And not everybody does that. Not everybody can do that in Cambridge or anywhere in the world to be open to that, to have that generosity. And one of my tasks in Crash was to pick people, to choose people who were good at that, both at the senior and the junior level. We had a work in progress seminar here for junior academics every week, every Monday lunch, absolutely required. Beginning of the week, pre-circulated material, and usually 25 people in this room, packed like this over sandwiches. And everyone thought it was good for them because they would give a paper and get feedback. And of course, that was great intellectual experience. It was an hour and a half serious argument on 
20-page chapter or something. Pretty frightening for the junior people. But what I was doing was talent spotting. Oh. I was looking for the people who I could then take aside and say, would you like to come and do a bit more work with us? Why don't we think about doing something a bit bigger? Would you like to think about meeting? You know? And that was, what, that was the way that grant proposals would start for the younger people, would be by me choosing the people who I thought had the intellectual qualities and the social or emotional intelligence to be able to do the sort of work we were interested in. And that, of course, takes us back to the Nine Dots Prize and... You described to me when we first spoke on the phone a while back that the when you make that phone call um, to the winner of the Nine Dots Prize, you called it a silence worth hearing, mm. which I thought was an absolutely lovely way of describing the utter astonishment, the life-changing joy of winning this opportunity mm. to come to Cambridge to develop your ideas into a book, to win $100,000, to say... We value your insight on this really important question. So a silence can be a really amazing starting point in time. Yes, you're absolutely right about silence. Augustine, one of the major thinkers on time, says two things. He says, first of all, if you've understood something, it's not God. But when he comes to talk about God's language, he says, well, of course, it can't be words with syllables, because they take time to say, and he is outside time. Therefore, God's language can only be heard in silence. Professor Simon Goldhill, it's been an absolute delight to hear both the interesting pauses and your very fascinating answers to my questions here on Thoughtlines today. The clock is ticking just behind us. We've run out of time for today, but thank you very much indeed for joining us on Thoughtlines. Thank you. find out more about the winner of this year's Nine Dots Prize, Trish Lawrence, and her project on youth and ageing in Africa at ninedotsprize.org. Thoughtlines is presented by me, Catherine Galloway, and produced by Carl Homer for Cambridge TV on behalf of CRASH, the Centre for Research in the Arts, Social Sciences and Humanities at the University of Cambridge. Join us again next time for more academic thinking outside the box. (laughs) 